do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Welcome to the Farmer's Philosophy Series, where we make time with farmers who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative agriculture. We sit down with them and explore the world of regeneration beyond soil health. We also film these episodes, so please have a look on our YouTube channel or the link below if you're interested. For now, make a cup of tea, find a comfortable place to listen and enjoy. Welcome to another Farmer's Philosophy episode here in a very, very special place. We're going to hear some background noises, which are perfectly fine here. We're going to hear a lot of birds as well, insects, uh, because we're in a very, very special syntropic field with someone very special, Diana. Thank you so much for having us here and for agreeing to film this episode in a beautiful, relatively early morning, um, which is going to help us to beat the sun because we're in summer which means it's going to get hot here even though it's a very thriving ecosystem very wet around us because it, it rained this night um, so first of all thank you so much for for having us here for agreeing on this this is not your normal habitat to have the camera on you usually on the other side exactly um, and so i'm very happy to uh, have the chance to take two chairs sit down with you and, and have a little chat this morning thank you for inviting me i'm happy to be here and to start with, what are the shapes we see around us? We see a lot of hay, a lot of straw, basically. Yes. And, but they're not in, in, in straight lines, as you might see, or actually, usually you see straw in different, in, in bales and in different forms. But let's start with a bit of the, the surrounding that we see around us. We're sitting on some wood, and I see some of these, uh, these nicely curved lines. Can you, can you walk us through it? Yes. Well, we are among nests where plants grow. So the hay is what is more visible because it's the top layer. But underneath we have some wood chips. And in the center of this nest, we have the consortia of plants that we always grow together. And is it the liberty you picked? I don't know if you picked the word nest, but the word nest for this um, I mean, it looks a bit like the bird nest, obviously, but we mainly only use it for birds. Yes. As you pick it for consortia, and we're getting to consortia in, in a second, but the consortia of trees? Yeah, uh, it was not me that decided this name. It, it's a suggestion by Ernest Gitt, who developed this kind of agriculture. He used this term in Portuguese. He used the term uh, ninho or berço, which is similar to nest or cradle. Uh, and the idea behind it is to oppose the word that we normally use in agronomy uh, to the place where we plant trees. The place, especially in Portuguese, the name that we use uh, for the place where we are going to prepare the soil to plant a tree, it's called uh, cova, and cova is grave in Portuguese. So it's... Uh, it's a heavy word in Portuguese, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because you're digging like a... To, you're digging the soil, digging a hole, and, uh, and you are going to... You are supposed to plant the tree inside that hole. And I think Ernest wanted to break this idea and bring the idea that to plant life, you need a nest, not a, a grave. <laughs> Which seems... Yeah, soothing, uh, absolutely. Yeah, but other than that, the shape helps. The name uh, is also important because it brings the idea of organizing the, the organic matter in this special shape of the nest, which brings some benefits in terms of uh, water retention and it has this logic behind the word, but also the, the practical side of it. So then let's move on to what we're sitting on, not, not the chair, obviously, but like the, the paths. There's a very deliberate design and use of material, let's say, there as well. Yes. Here we are in a system that we designed to have very high diversity 
and also to have this aesthetic uh, component. So we decided to make these paths not a straight path, but a curvy uh, line. So we are over these logs of wood that we cutted from the trees that were around here. Some of them were falling and others were blocking the sun from the afternoon. So we opened that area so we can get more light for the system. And all the wood that we cutted was integrated in the system in this form. So we can walk just here over these logs because we always have to think on our impact. Even when we come to the system to prune or to do something that is useful to, to the system, we also we always have to think on our impact and compacting uh, the soil while we walk on it. It's a huge impact. And this helps us to minimize that impact. Yeah, you're going to hear a lot of different terms here on, on the Syntropic side, consortia. We're going to get into that, but it's also um, an episode. You could be watching this on video. If you're not, if you're listening to the audio, uh, I definitely invite you to go to YouTube uh, as well and see it. You can see the beautiful lines behind us, but it's also an audio version. So don't, don't, don't worry, we'll make it will um, talk as visually as possible. So there are nicely curved lines here, and, uh, but it's definitely also a chance to, to see it um, visually. And then just in terms of geography and, and just to, to give people an understanding, we're not in Brazil. Um, we're, we're sitting in Depressa, which is a, a small town uh, close to Tricasa in Salento in, in Puglia in Italy. And what land did you hear, first of all? Well, Felipe and I, since we moved from Brazil, we lived in Portugal and then in Spain, and now we are here. Uh, one motive that is behind these decisions of moving is always a challenge, a new challenge, and a new environment and new things that we can learn. And here, uh, we were invited to, to work here, and it was very interesting for us because we are in this region that is facing a very difficult situation with the... Chilella fastidiosa, which is the disease that is attacking the olives. And basically the region had this economic cycle of the olives, uh, the, the production of the olives here. The first, the olio lampanti, which is the oil of the olives to use to, to, to lightening. And then uh, I think around 10 years, the region faced this, threatened of this Chilella fastidiosa that attacked all olives and we can walk around the region and it's very sad to see that all olives are dying, they are uh, drying and dying and it's changing all the landscape. So uh, in Portugal we were in a very difficult area as well in the south of Portugal in the Baixo Alentejo which is an area uh, threatened by the by desertification in Spain as well. And here it was another uh, scenario like this, which is good for us because we think that when we hit a crisis, it's also a moment of opportunity to suggest some change and to propose this very different kind of uh, agriculture is... Uh, it's difficult when people perceive that we have no problems. We are things are going well, yeah. why? So if you... things are going well, why do I, should we change? But if things are not going that well, maybe we should be looking for some solutions that are more adapted to the climate change challenges that we are going to face. And, and then when you, quote-unquote, land in an area like this, in, in, in a masseria, which is a a medium-sized farm with, with quite a few olive trees and, and other pieces of land like this one. You deliberately planted here, which is close to the road, as we hear. Uh, back then there was no wall, so uh, I remember a lot of people slowing down and looking, like, what on earth is going on here? Um, what, what is the first step you, you do? Like, how do you observe the land or read the land? Or how do you... What's the first thing you, you do when you get into a new... I mean, you know, it's a challenging situation, but of course you don't know exactly where to start and what to, how to approach it. Well, what's the first step when you, you land in a new challenge? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. 
find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Um, well, one thing that we like to do when we get to a new place is to observe areas that were not managed, areas where, uh, which was abandoned for a while and areas even near roads where people don't manage or don't take care a lot or hills uh, every place that we don't have the human action neither the uh, animal grazing it's a valuable place to observe what kind of plants are growing in different seasons of the year especially here in the mediterranean you have to watch what is growing during the winter and what is growing in, in spring, what is growing in the summer and what, especially what can stand the summer, what can keep growing uh, uh, even during the summer. And this is a valuable information for us. Yes. This piece of tree grew. We see the color difference. I don't know if you're going to catch this on camera, but there's a, a significant 25 centimeter growth in summer. You just mentioned pre, yes. pre-interview, which is amazing mm-hmm. because it was uh, especially July and August hot. Exactly, exactly. Not this dry. is lentiscus. It's a well-known bush, Mediterranean bush, but it's normally not considered in, uh, in a, to add it in a, an agricultural uh, landscape. And this is what we try to do. We try to see around what kind of plants are doing well, because we understand that if they are able to, to grow, it, it's because they're performing a function in that ecosystem at that moment, at that point of, uh, at that condition of fertility of the place. So all these indicators are good for us to understand what is happening in the soil and what we can, from where we can start. Yeah, because you're picking a a point that could be like an angle next to the road, somewhere where there's no human intervention and no animal intervention or very little. Mm -hmm. And then you start from there with a lot of human intervention, like what could happen if we, if we facilitate almost? Or yes. Is that the next step? Like you start collecting, okay, during the seasons, what, what is still able to grow in, in these harsh climates because it's not an easy place? Mm-hmm. And, and then you collect, and is that how you design the nest then? Is that the next step? Or? It is. It is in, I think it's the first uh, important step to understand because behind that observation, what we have in mind is the concept of succession. And the concept of succession from ecology, we know that is how the ecosystem is being occupied by different kinds of plants throughout the time. So it changed, the communities of plants change throughout the time. So when we understand which plants are growing now, we understand from where we have to start our succession. But then our role in this sense is to start from those plants and speed up this process. So we understand where to start from, but we know what can happen next. And by managing it properly, we can speed up what nature would be doing, it is doing in abandoned lands. We can speed up by adding this diversity, bringing uh, this diversity to grow together and speeding it up by pruning and doing all the management. So you're basically so taking a picture throughout the year of a specific spot and by, by doing that, you can see where in the succession that area is, that soil, but also the climate and also the, the, the weather influences. And by that, you say, okay, that's our starting point. Yeah. That's where we can start. And then we, and when you came here and you did that, how did that lead to the design of these uh, and the composition as well of these nests? Like if we look at the nests here, what, what do we see um, in there and what do you um, like the different components because it's very busy it seems very I'm not saying wild but messy in a good way <laughs> messy for usually for farmers is a is not the the right term but what, what do we see in a nest in the typical nest you've designed in in this part at least of the farm yes here in italy we always say when italian comes we, we say I know that it looks like a casino, which is a mess, <laughs> but it's not. It's by design. Be- yeah, because there is an intention behind it. It could be a t-shirt, casino by design. <laughs> so we add, uh, you can see in the nest, a lot of uh, Mediterranean bushes and uh, fast-growing trees, fruit trees, 
uh, trees that are considered just forestry and trees that are considered for production. And we combine them because each one is fulfilling a function and each one is occupying one layer as well. So I already mentioned the succession as one of our concepts that's behind the decision or the understanding and the succession that it's behind the the reading of the, the ecosystem. Which means in time, like it's not a constant, it's not that I plant this plant now, it will be there forever, every year. I no, there's a the ecosystem six, like has a succession over time which means there's a specific role at a specific time for a specific plant, and at some point that might change, exactly. and that ends, and that's okay. Like there's a, and then there's another, that's, there's another wave taking over. Like it's not that it stops, but that, that concept goes against everything we do in agriculture probably at the moment, but that's, that's a, a fundamental one, and you're saying another one. Exactly. And just to add the succession, it changed, and it's changed to the better, always. So what it goes to the next step, like we go to the next, next letter, step. like the next wave is more complex, more, more complex. full of biomass, full exactly. of life. The, the, the next community of trees, of plants are going to be more demanding in soil fertility. And, uh, and this fertility was created by the previous uh, community of plants. The soil is able to support a more complex. Exactly. So we, should, we shouldn't be sad that exactly. the phase ends of this this consortium, like the next phase go, goes there, okay. Yeah, we'll and take the, second, the second concept is the strata, the stratification, because we organize the plants in a such way that they, they can occupy different layers, vertical layers, instead of superpositions, we have the perfect match. So we have different layers that can grow together without overlapping each other. Which means how to capture as much sunlight as you possibly can. Perfect. Not let any, what is it, sun ray get wasted ever. Perfect, That's exactly. The... If we think about the, the leaf as a, a little solar panel, if we were to organize solar panels in the most efficient way, we would organize it in layers like we organize the trees. And so you design it and it looks very busy when, when uh, a layman or somebody who's not deep into centropic looks at this thing's competition, which we'll get into in a second, but thinks, oh my God, that's very busy. And you're saying that's by design because we need the, um, the different layers. We need to capture all the sunlight. One tree would just not be efficient. You lose a lot. Mm -hmm. and, and so we need the different layers. You need the bushes. So what else do we see in, in a nest like that? And, and how do you make sure you have those different layers and always something growing throughout the season because you said that's really important here to have something that survives or that keeps growing in the wind in the summer mostly mm -hmm. what's the the design there okay so we combine this uh, bushes this mediterranean bushes trees and also some crops that uh, we can produce something that uh, we want like other annual plants but the idea is to have our crops all the annuals that we are used to have as food for ourselves Tomatoes, oh, yeah. Tomatoes, now aubergines, onions, garlic. But always we have them growing together with some evergreen uh, and perennial plant because the idea is to prepare the soil once. So the first time when we are implementing the area, we prepare the soil from the beginning, but it, then it's the only time we do this work in the soil. And the seasons, we change the seasons and we can plant again our annual crops, especially in Mediterranean, when, where we have this caducifolia dynamics, when we have in the winter, some trees lose their leaves and we have another uh, opportunity to have light in the lower layers. So we always can plant again our crops, our vegetable crops. But the next season, we will not uh, start from zero Again, we already have our evergreens, our perennial uh, trees, uh, our perennial bushes growing inside the nest. And uh, we work just on the spot where we want to plant this next crop. And the, the, the value of that is that the soil was, is never uncovered again and it's never without roots exudate. So we have all year long photosynthesis occurring in the, in, in the surface, which means more roots exudate, and we are feeding the soil microbiome, 
And this is what it's important for us because there it is our the immune system of our uh, of our crops, and that is the the fertility of our crops and even the water of the re irrigation of our crops rely on that soil microbiome. And then when you say when people come here, we always say it's messy. What's the biggest challenge? Like when you do a lot of tours here, people. Uh, you take people through the system, uh, seeing what it does to the olives, what it does to the land in general. It's very visual, obviously. What do you see as the biggest, I'm not saying hurdle, but like the, the, the biggest challenge to people to, mm. to accept this or to accept that this is possible here? I mean, there used to be, the wall used to be gone and people could actually slow down and, and see what, what is happening. And it's been green even in, in the end of August now where the rest is, is relatively... Um, let's say, yellow and, and grey. Mm -hmm. But what do you see when people walk through here? What kind of questions? What's their biggest, um, biggest barrier to... to mm -hmm. And what, get, what do you get most questions about? I think the first thing, first thing that people um, get scared about is the management. They always think, no, but it's a lot, lot of labour involved on that. I think this is one. Uh, the cultural aspect is, is also huge. Um, like? Mm, especially with the olives. Uh, people have this attachment uh, with what has been, what was done by their grandparents and uh, what was done before. And uh, sometimes people think that the solution is to go back to what was done before. And what we suggest is that, yes, we have lots of good things to learn from uh, some knowledge that was lost, and, but we also have to think what we did back then that brought us to the crisis that we are now. And we have to look back with honoring uh, uh, this tradition, but not being blind to what contributed to bring us to this, uh, to, to the conditions that we are now, and what can we do better? I think the, a good way to honor the tradition is also doing better than that. Especially in a region where people are very attached to the trees. Yeah. And but it also feels almost in a phase of grief as well, like the system, the current system is dying. It's very clear, you can, you drive through the region, you see, like you said, you walk through the region, you cycle, you see endless dead or almost dead and dried up trees, which must be heartbreaking if you grew up here. And if you're not to the next phase, yes, of succession where you're like, okay, what can we do? Or, or we give up and we just move away and we do something else. Or what is, is there still hope and is there um, do you see that, that, that piece of hope when you see some of these trees regrowing or regenerating? Do, do, does that give people hope uh, if they see it? Or is it, oh no, that's too good to be true. Or I don't believe those green leaves that I see. Do you see that as a... I think there are these two reactions. We can see these two reactions here. But you use the, the right word, like they are grieving. And there is this period, even in psychology, when you just deny the, the trauma. And that after that, you have to overcome other steps and to, to get into action and to uh, understanding and trying to, to find other solutions. And, but the problem is, I think, is that some of people that understand already that it's a moment to change what was done here, they are, some of them are still waiting for a new cycle like we had here the cycle of the tobacco, we have the cycle of the olives, and now that it's finishing the cycle of the olives, they were looking for another cycle. And uh, I'm afraid that this is not the answer. If we just rely on monocultures and new cycles, we will always see the, this, the, the cycles, uh, the, the end of those cycles and the, the, the peak of a cycle and the end of the cycle. And... Uh, succession in a downward in the direction, other, yes. yeah, in the other direction. In the other direction. 
And a few people are looking to this problem uh, through the lenses of, uh, well, the system, it's not just a bacteria or a fungi that it's, it's attacking uh, the tree, but it's the whole systemic disease of the, 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 the health system of the, of the trees are, are not going well. So what can we do to enhance the immune system of this, uh, of our ecosystems? And uh, if we try to look to that, instead of trying to fight against the disease, it changes a lot on your, uh, on your approach. And I think we shouldn't be looking to uh, a new mechanism just, or at least not just to a mechanism to fight the disease, but also trying to find new, uh, new ways to plant or to have the praised olives and the oaks and all the, the, the trees that are beloved here, to have them in a good way, to make them grow well, because we don't only have to plant trees, we have to make them grow well. And the, which means you see a future here for oaks and olives and figs, or has that period passed? No, I think this is, the way this is... <laughs> That's a very dramatic one. <laughs> I think this is where we should be looking for. We should be looking towards this kind of uh, solution where we can integrate and we can uh, rebuild the natural ecosystem, which was uh, com composed by all this diversity. So having trees, have, having fig trees, prunos, figs, but also uh, oak trees and corbezolos, the um, strawberry tree, and all of them growing together throughout the, the year. Could rephrase, I would say that we have to think on restoring the ecosystem, not just uh, planting, focusing on one species or another, but restoring the ecosystem and with all its functions as well, trying to trick the functions of the ecosystem that it's on its own sustainable. And when you look at a, an average olive field here or farm or an, uh, an average olive grove, what do you see? Like putting your, your biology glasses on and your, of course, syntropic uh, hat on. What do you see when you look at that, like an average field? Most people would know maybe for either from pictures or from experience. Mm -hmm. what, what is uh, You see relatively old trees, big uh, branches, and, and, but what do you see um, when you sort of scan that? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing that pops up is that it's a monoculture. It's not anything else than that. It is a monoculture. And... We see, I see as well the soil being plowed between the trees two times, even three times a year. I see that the roots are, you can see perfectly around the roots, the erosion that has, occurring, has been occurring during these years. So uh, it's, it's difficult not to think that something wrong would happen. It's almost a miracle they're still alive. Yes. <laughs> they are really strong trees. They are the, the, the survivors. They, and because of that, maybe we, uh, we, we mistaken uh, them and we think that they are fine, but they are just being generous with our mistakes. And then does that almost hurt when you look at that as well? Trees that are clearly suffering, or clearly, like if you look well suffering from decades, if not more, of, of mismanagement. Mm -hmm. Is that something that we can talk about a tree like that? Is that something you see like, ooh, or like, does it hurt to your eyes when you see fields like that? Yes. Can you ever unsee that? No, you never unsee that. And <laughs> actually, uh, we have a friend that uh, he he's mad at us because <laughs> He said, I was much happier before you explained that to me. <laughs> now, I, every tree I, I, I could see around, I was so happy seeing all the tree. Oh, the tree is so beautiful. And I, now I look to the tree and I see, oh, but the tree is alone. and <laughs> There is no companion. And it's really changed the way we look. Uh, we learn, we read every 
uh, every landscape that we come across. It, it changes completely because um, when you understand the benefits and especially when you do it, when you try and when you have your, the experience by your own hands, uh, it's so powerful to see how uh, the perfect match, the good uh, trees growing together and species, not only trees, but species growing together, they do better than without this companion. And you really question all the concepts that we, we learned about competition. I was going to go there. Yeah. What, yeah. Is that another big one that people, because you plant a lot of things together and you say, okay, it's messy and management. You said people are, are struggling with. And the scarcity. And the scarcity piece. Yeah. Is yeah. that people like, what about water? What about the, exactly. the, the, exactly. Any, the, the food in the story? Like, how can so many things survive together? How, what are you adding? Or, mm -hmm. like, is that a question people ask or is that an underlying assumption no. people have? It, it is difficult because when they are here, they are seeing something that is not matching with what they, they, have, they have in their heads. So it's underlying. We always see that they want to question, but they are seeing, so they can't say, unsee what, what they are seeing. Uh, but for sure, the first thing when we talk, we can see when we are talking, we are explaining the system by pictures of when people are not in the field with us. The first thing is, but what happens with water? You will have much more demands uh, uh, of water, of nutrients. What about the nutrients of the soil? Uh, you have to give more nutrients because you're planting more. This is what we have uh, as a default in our minds. And uh, only, I think, only doing it by yourself, you will be able to overcome this because it's very... It's like a tattoo in our minds. Yeah, you went. You, you wrote a beautiful book as well with with your partner Felipe on uh, only in Portuguese until now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so do read it if you read Portuguese. I read a, a bad English translation, um, but it was still very powerful. I will, I'm looking forward to the good English translation at some point. Yeah, but you went deep into the scarcity versus abundance as well, and mm. like you say, a tattoo in our in our mind. Do you like when? When was that imprinted, that tattoo? Like, at some point that came. Like, I don't think we were, we as species were originally born with that. that, no. that seems, but like, we learned that. We learned that. Yes. Why and how? Well, let's think where to start. Um, well, this series is called the Philosophy Series, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was about production. No, it's not. <laughs> I think uh, when we started to think when we, we started to put the individual as the center of everything. And, uh, and this is very basic for us. We now, everything that we think about and the way we approach problems, we always think on individuals. And it's funny, if I would do this jump, if we go to the biology, uh, the concept of individual is the most philosophical concept, I think, in, in biology. If you go deep and if you start to, uh, looking to the uh, microbiology, the, the microorganisms, and you start to see that the frontier between individuals is very blurry. And this is what happened uh, when we plant three, uh, many species together. We start to understand that we are not putting individuals together. We are composing an organism. It's completely different. They are not, we don't have to think about eucalyptus as one tree that needs this amount of nutrients, this amount of water, because it behaves different if it is planted alone or if it's planted with other species together. If the amount of nutrients and water is different in different conditions, so we are not talking about an individual necessity, but the conditions, how it behaves when it is alone and how it is behave when it's composing a complex organism. And uh, this is difficult for us to understand because we, every, all the most basic concepts in biology is a projection of our individualism. We project the competition that we see in 
human societies, we projected to in the, uh, this interpretation to the, to the plants. The selfishness of uh, the human beings we projected in the interpretation of evolution. And it seems that we are talking about science, but it's, we are talking about interpretation that was informed before by our selfishness, our uh, individualism, and our concepts that are not exactly the best way to understand or to learn uh, about nature. It's difficult to, to summarize that. Part. Of course it's different because it's so <laughs> profound, like the whole individual, the, the image we put on nature and this is an individual tree and this is like, all of that is probably mm -hmm. just a projection of us. And, and you see it very clearly when you put a tree in a companion system it behaves completely different and needs completely different things and thrives completely different as we can see behind us than if you plant an individual somewhere with all the same nutrient and water you give, etc. Uh -huh. And that should give us a clue. Like, and, and probably, I mean, we've done the, those tests with humans, which is very cruel. Like, like we are social creatures mm -hmm. and somehow we imagine we're like individual units. Like that's the, it ends here and that's the... Mm -hmm. So that tattoo is quite, I mean, you could almost argue it started with the agriculture, I'm going to say revolution, but with the agriculture transition, whatever, 10,000, 12,000, mm. whatever the number is years ago. So that's a very deep system to un, un like a deep tattoo to, to unlock. And you're, you're clearly saying by doing it yourself, that's the best way to, to mm. see that power. Are there other ways as well? Have you seen other examples of, of, transformation of people like uh, actually that or actually x mm -hmm. or actually everything i thought or i was taught in school about not everything but most things about agriculture and, and how trees grow etc is turns out to be slightly different yeah i think different people have different entry points uh, to to connect to this uh, this kind of knowledge but uh, while we were talking i remembered uh, that if we look for, to the background of many uh, philosophers of science or people that uh, went through deep ecology or that started to question this kind of stuff, you always find some um, very traumatic moment. For example, uh, Val Plumwood, which is an Australian uh, philosopher, that uh, it, it was really important for, for me while we were uh, uh, writing the book. She questions the ecological view since Plato. Uh, she shows how we are divided and trying to master nature and uh, as a backbone of all our way of thinking. But uh, if we go uh, through her personal history, uh, what was the, her trigger was a moment when she was she almost uh, bite to death. She was attacked by an alligator. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, at that moment, she says that she felt that she was part of nature. It was a traumatic way to understand. Oh, literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to understand that she was not uh, apart from it. She was just another piece of life. And uh, so this is a one million question, I think, to how can we um, overcome this necessity of awareness or how can we overcome this individualistic way of thinking to really feel and understand that we are part of nature? Because it's very easy to say, oh, we are part of nature, We've, uh, we don't have to protect nature, we are, we are part of it, or many other slogans, uh, ecological slogans that it's easy to reproduce, but how to feel it. And I'm stressing here that by doing it, you, you can achieve this, uh, you can turn on this, <laughs> this key in your, hand, in your head. But I think each, people, each person has its own uh, uh, way of, of getting in touch with this, this connection. I think that's why when we worked with kids, it's where it was a good experience because it gave us hope 
to see how kids can connect very fast with this interpretation. And it seems that it makes sense for them more than the other interpretations that they will learn throughout the school <laughs> years. And uh, so it seems that it's not difficult to understand, but you have to try to find your way. That personal transformation or that moment of not discovering, reconnecting to <laughs> to the app that's passing by. No, to, to how did that happen for you? Was it one moment? I mean, you weren't attacked by an alligator, I hope. Mm -hmm. Like, what was that trigger? What, was there a trigger for you or how did that process happen? It's funny because when people see now, when I talk about this kind of agriculture, they think that I was always completely in love about uh, this universe or that I was always involved with plants. But I have a background that has nothing to do with agriculture, nor ecology or anything like that. And my first approach was doubting about it. I was really curious when I got in touch. I had the privilege of being in touch with Ernest since the beginning. So I had this very personal lessons with him. While he is very gentle, very generous on sharing it, uh, I was curious about why that knowledge was not well known by a broader public. And as a journalist as well, I started to think maybe we should communicate better this kind of ideas so we have more people looking at it. And my intention was to have more people, different kinds of people looking at it to test it, really. To question, to yeah. question it in, in, in different ways because I felt that I was not able to make the best questions or to, especially back then, uh, that I was not in the field or not... Uh, studying this kind of things. So I wanted uh, to have more people questioning it and people from different fields, not only those that were that had this directly connection with what Ernest says. Because people that already love nature, already is involved, already is connected with nature, when he starts to explain this kind of agriculture, they quickly connect to it. And, and I was not like that. And I was wondering, what if, what if we bring other types of people, people that are not already convinced about, the, about it, how would they behave or how, uh, what kind of questions they would propose if they, under, they see what is happening here? Because materially, I went to Ernest's farm and I could see from the beginning that, that ideas worked in the, in, in the concrete aspect. So they work, but people are not explaining it in different levels. They are the first adopters of this kind of agriculture. They were already convinced about the importance of it. Are we so. like almost secretly hoping people would find holes in it, like in the theory and the practice, like other <laughs> monoculture farmers or, or a whole group of, of quote-unquote serious scientists would look at it and would, would shoot some holes in it? Was that the... I wanted to, to, to give it a try to see what was going to happen. Because if they see a hole, then Ernest would have the opportunity to improve his method or his theory. And if they didn't, it would be very good to have more people looking at it and sharing it and showing the other uh, aspects that having other backgrounds, they would help us to explain what was happening below the soil or in the ecophysiology or in all the details behind it that could be better explained in the scientific way. And I was always interested in that. And, and what has happened? Has many holes been found and been, been quote-unquote fixed? Or how has been the, the journey, basically, of bringing more eyes to, to this? In general, of course, you made a, a very famous and popular documentary, Life in Syntropy, that I don't know how many millions of people watched it. If you haven't, don't do it now, but do it at some point in any translation you can find. Um, but so that process of bringing more eyes to this, have you seen serious questions around it? Have you, what has been the general response or the general, not from the people that you said are already 
reconnected to nature, etc., but from the, the larger audience that isn't. It was good to see that they pushed what Ernest was already saying, they pushed it further. They helped the argument mature. I, I'm sure about that. I think it's also uh, the moment or the, the zeitgeist because all the science, either the biology or especially the microbiology, is bringing all the news, the frontier of this uh, discipline is bringing so much more answers to what was observed in the field. Competition piece, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That it was, it's an amazing adventure to study that because every day we find a new discovery that help us explain something that we already observed in the in the practical field. And this, which is an interesting process. And it comes back to a point we've made actually many times on the podcast also with Jonathan Lundgren and, and other scientists that the most interesting things and observations are happening on the farm, on the leading farms now, on the cutting edge farms, I'm not saying leading because yeah. there's no hierarchy, but the ones that are pushing the edges of what we know. Mm-hmm. And then it should be observed and written about and published, etc. Not the other way around, mm-hmm. because people in the field are observing things that according to many current models, etc., are, are not possible, or at least not known. And you're saying we're, the scientists are starting to catch up with, with a lot of things that you and Ernest and others have observed 15, 20 years ago. Exactly. And is that something of the last years, or what do you see there, what do you... I feel that one important improvement that we are observing in the science recently is the transdisciplinary movement, when different disciplines start to understand that they have to talk to each other to find new explanations of some event or some phenomenon. And agriculture, I think it's the terrain of the multidisciplinary things happening because nature is multidisciplinary. The relations between uh, the, the relations that are established in the, in the dynamics of nature are very complex. So when you transition from a science that it's only the disciplinary to a multidisciplinary science, then you open many doors of interpretations. And I think this is good, and this is what we are seeing in the, the philosophy of science. We are going more towards that aspect, and I think it's perfect to understand and to find answers to our multidisciplinary problems. Yeah, it seems very counterintuitive to think in silos in that sense, but it's been, we've been mostly, I mean, as we discussed before, organized our lives in silos, and, and thus also science. Mm-hmm. And so what, like, on your, you said almost, like, daily new discoveries or new things that we've observed, what, what is one of the, the latest ones that surprised you or something you've seen? Like, ah, I, I, now I know how it works, but I knew before that, that it actually works. Mm-hmm. What, what is something you, you saw recently or the last mm. months? Um, a very recent one is about the, um, how the, when you add nitrogen, how it impacts the amount of water that the system needs. Because I, I wouldn't go to the specific explanation of the uh, chemistry on that, but uh, I have to, to study more. But the idea is that they are showing when you add nitrogen, you increase the necessity of water. So it, this is confirming something that we observe that in accumulation system, the idea of accumulation system of, or abundance systems, that we have to transit to abundance system where you have these cycles or these this nutrients are made available by the soil microbiome instead of adding it from uh, external input and how it changes the flow of water and the maintenance of the water available for the plant. Basically meaning if you, the nitrogen in this case is the nitrogen we add to a system exactly. triggers somehow the system to need a lot more. To need more water, yeah. To metabolize that nitrogen to make it available to the tree, you need some amount of molecules of water. So if you don't add, you're sparing that amount of water. And this is being described more precisely recently, which is nice. And it's something that we had already observed in uh, practical experiences. And the other one, the, the region between the root system the, and the organisms that are in the soil and how they can transit. The rhizosphere. 
the rhizosphere, how they can transit from the soil to the root systems. Like it's another way, another uh, explanation on how the individual barriers are being blurred. There's no problem for them to go inside the roots, outside the roots and transport nutrients and uh, transport water and, trans and help the, the immune system of the plants. Or not. Or yeah. not, yes. And this is amazing. This is, a, uh, this is something that is very interesting for us. And uh, can we see that now? Like, is it made visual or how do we even approach in a lab, because of course a, a nest like the one behind you or behind me is very different than a lab. We had a long time ago now, Elaine Ingham on, on the show as well, and she described how she quote unquote discovered the soil food web, partially because in labs they used one growth medium that basically supported one or two bacteria. So everybody thought there were one or two bacteria in the soil until she put a, uh, some healthy soil under a microscope and discovered there were, I'm saying a number 20,000, and probably we discovered it's 10x more than that, but let's say how we bring something to the lab and how we support it in the lab, of course, like how do you bring a living system to a lab? You already altered it by the fact that you brought it somewhere. You already altered it, like you said, by stepping into a system like that. Mm -hmm. how, how do we do even research like that? How, do, how would you do it? Because that sort of suggests we have no idea what's happening here mm -hmm. uh, in, an, in a healthiness like that mm -hmm. compared to what you research for, for a paper. This is a methodological challenge for sure, but we have to overcome that because we have to explain the phenomenon that we see. This, it's not the other way around. We don't, have, we don't use the science to fit uh, what is happening. We, we, we use what is happening, what we can see, the experiences. They have to raise the questions that the science uh, must pursue. And we know less about the soil than we know about the stars, about the universe, about the, the solar system. If we see from the perspective of sciences, this is a good news. Like, it's a playground. <laughs> it's a, another universe to, to, yeah. to, to discover. Uh, we just have to overcome these methodological uh, barriers and to understand that taking something from the... Uh, taking some, one element and moving it to the lab will not give you the answers of what's going on in the field. And even if we think the change in the soil during the seasons or the difference between day and night, I mean, the variables are infinite and they shouldn't uh, scare us. They, they should be something to, to make us even more eager to... <laughs> to try to understand because it, it's an universe and a beautiful universe. And that gets us to a, another big one, like our interventions, our as, as the, the human species and the, I was gonna say the fact that, but let's say the vision that we can be a net positive species here, we can be a keystone species, take that role. And, and I feel a big step for many or would be on, on a consciousness level to see you're part of nature. But then I think many people are also in almost the grief part of where the bad part of nature, where the part of nature that it's better to, to cut away or to minimize the damage we're doing and not look at the potential positive or like the management. And that's what we see here. This is heavily intervened. Like you're saying, oh, many questions of people come like, how much labor or maintenance does it cost? But you see here the effect of that. This would be very different if you planted and walked away and came back two, three, four years later. Mm -hmm. like that journey of seeing the positive side of intervention and actually that these plants thrive because we prune and exactly. because we're involved. Do you remember when that, that hit you? I think it's gradual and it, until you get to the point that you really feel that it's not only that you can help, you can have a positive impact, but you start to feel that you have that role that... We need to. <laughs> you need to do it. It's almost like, ah, yes, now I have to do this. And, uh, uh, this makes sense. This puts my uh, abilities, my uh, physical abilities and my mental abilities, it gives you satisfaction. That, made to do this. That kind of makes you feel that, ah, this, this is what I was supposed to do, actually. And here, what does that mean for a field like this? What, what should people imagine 
Like the role, of course, we only walk on the paths. We don't walk. But what's the the role here? What do you see here that needs to be, that you feel like you need to do, or like your role is here? There is always something to do, and this is the the good part. There is always something to take care of, and I think this is what is rewarding because you feel that you are taking care, and you feel that system thriving, and this is rewarding in a certain way. And I was never convinced that. Walking into nature, it's something that will, would connect me to nature. Or walking in the forest, and this is something that we, we hear a lot, especially here in Europe. And it's strange for me because even what it's called forest here, it's kind of different of what I think it's a forest. And people think that just walking into nature or having its experiences during the weekend in nature would reconnect them to nature. But I think this is a very selfish perspective, a very self-centered way to look at it because you are just putting yourself in the middle of some trees and you are not actually interacting it in. You are not making anything better. Better. <laughs> I don't know. You are even compacting a little bit of the soil where you were walking. <laughs> so uh, when you, you have this connection, you follow the growth of a tree. It's completely different when you feel the happiness of organizing the nest around it because you already foresee what's the effect. So you almost participate of that flow of life in every little action that we do. If you do it with consciousness, when with purpose and understanding this balance of the strata, of the succession, and you know that your intervention can speed that process up and make things uh, thrive better. This is, I think, what made me feel connected to something. Yeah. Not even connected, like really part of. Yes. Because just to give people, like, it's difficult to, under, to even imagine this nest without human intervention or like what would happen if you just planted once and, and abandoned or let go? What, what would be, what would we see if you can even imagine that? Hmm. Nature is very generous with us and they keep trying to, I think the those trees would keep growing. Yeah, they are not generous to us. I would correct that because they are not doing that for us. They are doing that because this is what, uh, how they behave, how life flows. So uh, they would grow, but they would be doing the work of restoring the fertility of a land that we had destroyed. So they they would be doing something they would be correcting some of our mistakes and i think the least we can do is to be back there and pay our ecological debt instead of just planting a tree and letting it that we should taking care of should be there taking care of it or even just like some arguments of the the rewilding or others like put a big fence around and, mm. and step out yes what, what do you say to those thoughts of because you also look at for you look for inspiration in a new place when you get to a challenge like here mm -hmm. of the abandoned places what, what do you say to those theories or those practices of just let it go fellow by by itself i think it, it is it is not fair because we have a responsibility on that and leaving the responsibility of correcting our mistakes to other beings And just, the, I mean, the better we can do is not doing harm. It's very sad that. <laughs> it's very sad if the best we can do is just stop doing the wrong things that we do. But we should take on our responsibility of paying the debts, of making ourselves useful to the system. This is, this is the difference. We, we have to make our presence useful to the flow of life instead of damaging. And we have to use our tools. We have hands, we have opposite fingers, we have brain, we have legs, we, have, we can prune, we can 
bring uh, organized organic matter. We can disperse seeds. We are large animals. This is our one of our functions in the ecosystem. We eat because we were supposed to bring the seeds of what we eat to another place and plant them. So let's find our habitat. We don't know about where we know the habitat of all animals, the best habitat of for of all animals. What is our habitat? Where is the habitat where we have a function, where our presence is beneficial? This is what we have to try to find. And I think it's a perfect end to to this conversation. I want to thank you so much for having us here and in this habitat that is very pleasant in the early morning um, with some, some noises, but also some lovely birds, which is amazing. Some wind that's picking up and it seems like it's going to be a lovely day. So thank you so much for sharing, for the work you do, obviously, and for coming on here to talk about it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you liked this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.